You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Christ is risen. Deity is risen. It's a blessing to be here together for our lectionary reflection on the Sunday of the Samaritan woman, in which we take a look at John chapter 4, verse 5 through 42. It's basically, it's the whole chapter of uh, uh, chapter 4 of the Gospel of John, and our epistle text, which is given to us from Acts of the Apostles, chapter 11, verse uh, 19 through 30. Acts chapter 11, verse 19 through 30. Um, Encourage all of our participants to get out your Bibles and to be ready to go uh, with your markers, highlighters, pens, notepads, and so forth. We got a lot of stuff to cover today, and we're going to do it very fast uh, for sake of to- uh, time, And uh, but it's going to take us some time, even, even so. So let's jump right in. John chapter 4, verse, starting with verse 5. At that time, Jesus came to a, to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, wearied himself, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting at the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a Samaritan woman to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me to drink. For his disciples had gone away into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you... Although you are a Jew, ask a drink of me, who am a Samaritan. The Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you only knew the gift of God, and who it was who was saying to you, Give me to drink, you perhaps would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no pail, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water from? And you, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself and his sons and his flocks? Now, we're going to stop right there because the length of this gospel text, Father Sebastian. And I'm going to ask you to just share with us a little bit, as we usually do, the historical context. We've got to know quite a bit here who the Samaritans were. Why was it that the Jews had no dealings with them? And there's just there's so much here. Obviously, we're not going to be able to cover everything, but, but at least to get the basic historical context down. So why don't we start there? Who are these Samaritans that Jesus is now going to encounter? All right, so the, the Samaritans, uh, they're obviously, this is a very important because they're all over the New Testament. There's still Samaritans in modern Israel today as well. The, the Samaritans are the remnant of the northern kingdom in the Old Testament. So uh, I think Many people at least know that there were some problems in the politics in the old uh, the Old Testament kingdom. The major event along these lines was when the grandson of David. So David had Solomon, Solomon's son Rehoboam, 
was ruling over the people. And Rehoboam was not the best politician. And so what happens is the north and the south, the kingdom of God, which was one kingdom from Galilee all the way down to Judea, all the way uh, through that area, that region, was one political unit. It breaks in half into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom. And the story of that breaking down, we can't look at it today. I don't think we'd have enough time, but we can just, I can give the references to the audience here. And that would be, they'd want to read what happened in first Kings chapter 12. And then, so there's the break between the North and the South. The Southern kingdom will be called Judah. The Northern kingdom will just be called Israel because the rest of the tribes for the most part are up there. And then that Northern kingdom, and this is mentioned in first Kings chapter 16 verse 24. That's 1 Kings 16, verse 24, and just write it down, I suppose. Uh, we hear that what's happened is they, the northern kingdom purchases a hill owned by a man named Shemer, and they need to have a capital city for their, their northern kingdom. They want to up on a hill. This is before satellite imagery. If you can see your enemy coming from a distance, you'll be up on a hill. So, they pick this hill as their spot where they want to make their city, their capital city. And so the, the city that's built on the hill of Shemer becomes known as Shemeria, or you lose the SH in the Greek and then the English. So Samaria. So the word Samaria is a reference to the northern kingdom. Okay? And, and then, the, of course, the story goes on from there. So we're going to get into this more at, because this whole story is just um, through and through this, you have to understand this background, who these people were. Um, and if you got, if you have that readily available to you, then you're going to understand that everything about the story and the conversation that takes place here. Uh, it's important also to remember that in the gospel of John, especially, uh, John is writing and Jesus is speaking, but John is, is highlighting this fact of the way Jesus is speaking. Jesus is speaking in two levels, uh, uh, a kind of what we might call a natural and a supernatural level or an earthly level and a divine level. We see this first take place, may not first take place, but really prominently in the, in the conversation with Nicodemus just a few chapters before where Jesus talks about being born anothen or being born, as we normally read it, born again. But that word, as, I'm, as I understand it, Father, you, correct me if I'm wrong, can be translated in two ways, to be born from above or to be born again, literally, uh, to, as Nicodemus was hearing him. And this same pattern follows now in, this, in this, uh, this story with the Samaritan woman where Jesus is speaking and the, the Samaritan woman is, is trying to understand what he's saying, very much like Nicodemus was trying to understand what he was saying, and she's struggling. And the whole story will be her struggle and eventual success in understanding that Jesus is trying to elevate her to see and hear him on another level, uh, on, in some sense on a divine level. Uh, but she's stuck here in a, in a very much a material level. She's come to get water She's thirsty. She's got to bring water back with her. And Jesus then begins to uh, have a conversation with him. I want to take a look at this conversation. We finish the first part of it uh, where Jesus says, give me uh, a drink of water. She says, why is it that you're asking me for water? I'm a Samaritan woman. He says, if you knew the gift of God, 
and uh, you would perhaps have asked me and I would have given you living water. There's another point there where, where there's a, a conversation that's taking place on two levels. The word in Greek, zoin, is a, it can be translated in two ways. Again, Father Sebastian, correct me if I'm wrong, but living water can be understood as running water, uh, water that's not stagnant and contaminated, uh, running water, or also life-giving water. And of course, this woman understands him on that earthly level, that kind of natural level, where she says, how are you going to get this living water? And actually, you can go to this location today where this well exists, and you can draw water from this well. But the water that's in this well, the living water, in a natural level sense, the running water, comes into this particular well very deep down at the very bottom is where that fresh water comes in. So she says on the natural level, how are you going to get it? You, you don't even have a bucket with you. How are you going to get down to that deep? But Jesus, of course, is talking on another level. And, and Father, I want to turn to you now and ask you about this conversation then on, that, on the level in which Jesus is speaking, because this is very rich regarding the Samaritans, their relationship with the Jews, and this idea of the gift of God uh, that Jesus has come to give the true living water, which he's going to be the source of. The, yeah, so the, if you go back in the, in the gospel here to the prologue, there's this theme of the gift from God already there. The gift given by God through Moses is the Torah. But the true gift, the full gift, the grace, grace, gift, same thing in Greek, same idea, it comes through Jesus Christ. So John starts out this gospel by showing us that Jesus is not only the new Moses, but he's the fullness of what was given in a preliminary way through Moses and Mount Sinai. And, and so that's what we're seeing here. This issue comes up. He asks her for water. She says, you know, you, you want water from me? And Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God, and now this is that other level you're talking about, that bigger picture, the gift of God is the Torah, the, the word of God given by the Father, by the Holy Spirit, to the people of God. In the Old Testament, that was on stone tablets at Mount Sinai. And so he says, if you knew the gift of God, if you understood the gift of God, the Samaritans have the five books of Moses. They have the Torah, but their form is called the Samaritan Pentateuch. It's corrupted. It's got all sorts of changes to it and things like that. And so she doesn't recognize that she's speaking right now to the gift of God. And then he says, you would have asked him for a drink and he would have given you living water. Then living water is again to reference that Sinai. If you go back to the story in the Exodus, when the people cross the Red Sea, they come to the other side and they're hungry. So they get the man in chapter 17, they're thirsty. But God doesn't want to give them a spring of water out there in the wilderness because if he does, they're not they're never going to leave it. If you're out in the wilderness with, you know, thousands and thousands of people and, and cattle, you're not going to leave a spring of water. So he has Moses go down to the foot of the mountain, Mount Sinai, and strike a rock at the foot of the mountain. And living, like you said, or flowing water flows back to the camp. And then the people follow this river of living water to the spring of water at the foot of the mountain. And it's at that mountain, once they get there, that they receive the law, they receive the word of God. And so Jesus is showing, showing her that 
He's the fulfillment of all this. He is the one who gives the living water. He is the one from which the, the spirit flows. And she, if she receives the spirit, receives that living water, she will be drawn through him, like the word of God at Sinai, to the Father, back in communion. And of course, that is life, right? And later on in the gospel, in chapter 7 and chapter 20, Jesus is going to talk about himself again as uh, that from which the Spirit will flow. And in fact, he will breathe on them and say, receive the Holy Spirit later on. There's another level here too, Father, that I think might be profitable for our participants to kind of dive into a little bit if you want to do a little extra study. And that is this, this point you brought up about the the uh, the Samaritans read uh, they had that they had the Torah the first five books uh, but then by extension that they didn't have the rest of the Old Testament as the Jews of Jesus's day would have had it they in effect they rejected the prophets and the prophets always came to them and said get your act together and get you know stop your paganism get yourself back restored to the kingdom and uh, and therefore they rejected the prophets and it's really in the prophets isn't it that that we get in, uh, I think, I think in Ezekiel, maybe even Jeremiah and other places where, where there's this the prophecies of when the Messiah comes, there's going to be this cleansing with water and there's going to be springs of living water that flow forth from Jerusalem, all of these things. But the Samaritans have rejected the prophets, the writings of the prophets. They wouldn't even have known. So when Jesus begins to engage in this conversation regarding living water, in some sense, the Samaritan woman is handicapped and, because they have ultimately rejected the fullness of the gift of God. Yes, the gift of God is the Torah, the first five books, but by extension, the, the entire Old Testament. Am I reading that right? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think this is certainly the case with the, the water and the image of, as we're going to see with husband and things, like you said, with Jeremiah and Ezekiel. There's definitely that theme there. So, okay, so this is a whole other thing. We don't have time to, you know, rabbit trail. We don't have time to tra- chase. But, but I would encourage, if you want to go further and do a little study, go back and do, uh, is it Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, I think. Is it Jeremiah 31, 31 I'm thinking of? So go back and do a little reading there if you want. Let's continue to read here. It says, In answer, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. He, however, who drinks of the water I will give him shall never thirst. But the water I will give him shall become for him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. So again, she's Jesus speaking to her, obviously, about something elevated, okay, uh, uh, regarding this living water. But she again says, give me this because I'm going to keep drawing this water. I'm thirsty, okay? And the woman said to her, sir, give me this water. I might not thirst and come here to draw. And Jesus said, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have said, well, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. In this, you have spoken truly. The woman said, sir, I see that you are a prophet. I'm going to stop there for a second because I think this is also coming back to what I was saying earlier about the Samaritans rejecting the prophets. This is, a, in some sense, a turning point in their conversation because, as I think you're going to mention here regarding this conversation, this whole, this woman, in some sense, represents the entire Samaritan nation. So, so for her to recognize him as a prophet, and all that comes with that now and the flood in a sense of the entire Old Testament, all of those prophecies of Ezekiel and Jeremiah and so forth come flooding into the story. It says, our father worshiped on this mountain. 
But you say Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. And Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Now, stop there now, Father. I'm going to ask you to talk about this because this is, there's a lot going on here. The, the, the mountain uh, that, is, that is, I believe, Mount Gerizim, where the well is at the base of this, which is where their temple was, where they worshiped these, these false gods. But there's an interesting play now. It goes from this conversation about living water, immediately the husbands, and immediately worship. So there, there, there must be a connection here between the three, and I'm going to ask you to, to share with us your insights on that. Sure. So the, there's likely, as, as you said, there's, there's probably, there's certainly different layers of meaning going on here. There's Jesus, a Jew, speaking to a Samaritan, right? But there's also the bigger picture of the, the, con, the political problems of the Samaritans having broken away from the Jews or the kingdom of Judah. And that's where, we, where he says, there's salvation from the Jews. The uh, what happened is this, when they went into the promised land, Moses had not led them in. The, um, uh, Moses had said in chapter 18, verse 15 of Deuteronomy, that the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me who will lead you to where you are to go. And they're supposed to be led to the place where God is going to cause his name to dwell when they're going to worship. So this is a, a theme where, you know, to where this is all going, of course. But, to answer the question specifically regarding the, the Samaritans and this husband thing, when the people went in the promised land and they eventually broke up in the northern and southern kingdom, the northern kingdom was eventually conquered by the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire <coughs> moved them, many of them, from their land, exiled them, and put them in different places, and then brought five other nations in to the region and uh and the people in the northern kingdom then become a mixture of not only the remnants of the northern kingdom the northern tribes but also these five nations and with those five nations we're told in first king or second kings chapter 17 we're told that they bring in their five religious systems with them. Mm -hmm. And in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, like you mentioned, Isaiah, it's often point is the point is made that the relationship between God's people and, and God is like a husband and a wife. And so that when they go off and they worship other gods, it's like they're committing adultery. And so it's probably intended here a, uh, a larger commentary on not just this woman who has obviously had a bit of sort of past, but of the bigger picture that she's a type or an image of, and that is the Samaritan peoples who are not properly yoked to their husband, that is the one true God of, of Israel. And so there's a, there's a problem there. You've had five husbands, the one you're with is not yours. Maybe commenting on that situation, the Samaritans had had these five other religious systems and at the same time, they'd, be, they'd begun to worship Yahweh. At this point, the Samaritans are, are monotheists. They're no longer polytheists. But they're not, they're not yet reunited to the worship of the one true God in Jerusalem and, and all of that. So there's probably some of that going on. Some, some have commented on this passage, the one she's with 
right now is Jesus, who is the incarnate God so uh, of the Old Testament. So there is this interesting play between the, the, the historical exchange here in John uh, and the larger historical context of the, of the Samaritans. And uh, it's a challenge also for us academic, uh, spiritually to ask ourselves, are we, do, are we more like those who follow the one true God, or are we more like the Samaritans who have our allegiance divided between the various gods of our life? But that, we'll leave that for uh, homily on Sunday. There's one last passage here, a point that I think is, is important, Father, that uh, may, especially for our participants of uh, the Eastern churches, may find striking and challenging. Um, and that is Jesus's comment here that salvation is from the Jews. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. What is that? <laughs> Help us understand that passage. Well, okay, so first of all, our audience needs to realize the word Jew here does not mean Israeli, okay? So typically what happens, people hear something like this, and they import into the word the Jews, the Israelis. And then, of course, are off on a, you know, confusion. So we've got to go back to that first century context and back into the Old Testament context that, that this is all in reference to, and that is that when the Assyrians came in and attacked the region. They conquered the northern kingdom. They conquered the Samaria. They conquered Samaria and destroyed it. But they then turned and tried to conquer Jerusalem or the Jews, Judah, the tribe of Judah, the kingdom of Judah. And they could not conquer it. Because Hezekiah, the great king of the time, the very, the, the very, very great king, King Hezekiah, uh, had prayed for God's help. And he was the descendant of David. He was the rightful heir to the throne of the line of David. And he, as a righteous son of David, descendant of David, asked Isaiah the prophet what to do. And Isaiah the prophet prayed and told Isaiah to tell King Hezekiah what to do. And through Hezekiah, his tunneling work under Jerusalem and, and all these and all the great things he did through the direction of Isaiah, the Assyrians eventually could not conquer Jerusalem. And so salvation in the Old Testament context, that means salvation from your enemies who are trying to kill you. Salvation was from Judea. Those who were in Judea remained saved, that is undead, unkilled by the Assyrians, unconquered, and so salvation was from the Jews. The reason why the northern kingdom was conquered is because it had broken away from the kingdom of Judah. And so that's what that statement is, Old Testament context. But as you said, there's a lot more going on. This is the New Testament, right? And Jesus, of course, is the Jew through whom salvation will come. He's of the tribe of Judah, of the line of David. He's the new Hezekiah. And through him, salvation can come for the Samaritans if they only are willing to receive him. Now, this conversation continues now, um, continuing on regarding worship. <clears throat> and then uh, there's a turning point. It says, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. So there's, there's, it's interesting. There's a whole development here, by the way, of her, of this conversation. From the point she meets him and she calls 
you know, he, she refers to him as a Jew, then she refers to him as sir, then she calls him a prophet. And now the conversation begins to point in the right direction. Finally, it comes to its kind of pinnacle, right? Where she starts to realize there's something going on here in this conversation that is bringing her and she, she begins to talk in terms of the conversation Jesus really wants to have with her, which is regarding the, the, the Messiah, the King, and the restoration of this kingdom by which the, the Samaritan peoples would be reunited, in some sense, to the, uh, the throne of David. And says, um, I know the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak with you am he. Uh, now, the text breaks off here a little bit. It says, and at this point, the disciples came and they wondered why he was speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? And why do you speak to her? But now it picks up. The woman therefore left her water jar and went away to the town and said to the people, come and see the man. Okay. So there's this, there's this critical turning point where this woman finally advances from her water jar and the question of the bucket and the depth of the well and the living water down there. And also, whoa, we're talking, we're not talking about living water down here. We're talking about living water up here. And, and, the, and this beautiful thing in the gospel of John about being present. Remember how Jesus said to the first apostles to come and see, come and see. And those that come and see and remain with him come uh, and, and in a sense drink from that living spring then are filled up with that life. This happens over and over again. It happens to Nicodemus over the story of the whole gospel. By the end, he's faithful and, and comes to the, to the cross of Christ. Um, and it happens to this, this woman here. She remains there with him. She doesn't say, well, you're a Jew. You shouldn't be talking. I had nothing to do and walks away. No, she remains there and continues to struggle and continues to try to understand. It's so important for us as, as a, the people of God that this, this woman sets a, a model for us that our first encounter may not uh, even bear fruit. We're, we're drink, trying to drink from this, this spring of life that God has given us, and it's, it's sometimes difficult. Uh, and yet, if we remain faithful, remain there as this woman did, and we, and we continually drink, we will be filled up with this spring. And so this, is, this happens. She says, Suddenly, Jesus turns and says, look, our conversation's over. I'm revealing to you the fullness of this whole business. I who speak to you am he. And she just drops the water jar, leaves her old life behind, and she goes, in a sense, filled with that spring of living water. Can you speak about those words quickly, Father, uh, that Jesus says, I who speak to him am he, that causes such a, say, conversion of this woman at this moment. Sure. So the, I think we've talked about this before, and that is the, the, the Jews are waiting for the return of two kings. We say two personalities, but like two kings to Jerusalem. They're waiting for the return of the divine king, and they're waiting for the return of the human king. The human king is called the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. But the glory cloud is also not yet returned. They're waiting for both of these things to happen. And all the prophets talk about the restoration of the kingdom is the return of the presence of God and the, and the presence of the Davidic king. And so the question, be, when he says the salvation is from the Jews, he says, but the hour is coming and now is, and the true worship will worship the Father in spirit and truth. So it's not on this mountain, Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem. That's neither place, not the temple on Mount Gerizim nor the temple in Jerusalem. 
is the place where salvation happens. Neither of these places, true worship will happen in spirit and truth. And of course, this is who Jesus is, right? So Jesus is revealing that he is actually the temple of God on earth, where God is doing those who are with Jesus, as you admit, those who are with Jesus are on the holy mountain, whether you know, wherever they are. And so that's what it, you know, the conversation turns to the Messiah. And then Jesus I, says, he answers both questions. That is, where is God and where is the Messiah in one question? He says, I who speak to you am he. Because what he says there is not only that he is the Messiah, the anointed king in the line of David, the return, but he, in the Greek there, John has given us the language, ego imi, I am, which is the same language that you get back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when God reveals his divine name, Eche Asher in Hebrew, in the Septuagint it says, Ego imi ho'on, I am he who is. And, and throughout the Gospel of John, all commentators note this, that when Jesus says, Ego imi, I am, I am the life, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the bread, I am, I am he. It's not simply Jesus identifying himself as bread, life, whatever. It's a double statement. He's that what he's talking about, but there's in every one of these, it's also a statement of divinity, of identifying himself with the God of the Exodus. And, and so, he, now, I don't know if the woman grasped this at this point, but certainly John's hoping we're going to hear us, we the audience, like also hearing this, the two layers there, of the, yes, I'm the Messiah you're waiting for. And yet we who are the audience, who are Christians listening in, know the end of the gospel when Thomas will say, my Lord and my God. There, there now ensues a conversation with the disciples um, that seems to me to be related to everything you've been talking about, having placed us in the context of the Exodus, a conversation regarding lunch. Okay, The apostles have gone off. Uh, left Jesus there at the well to have this conversation. They've gone off to the nearby town to get some shawarma, and uh, they're going to come back now with their sack lunches, and uh, you know, and and sit down, and they're going to be able to have lunch with Jesus. But the uh, Jesus not not so hungry because he says, "My food is to do the will of the one who sent me, accomplish his work." And uh, John obviously is pointing this out for a reason. It's, and I, I, I mentioned the Old Test, the Exodus background that you've been really bringing to the forefront for us, because here in the in the desert, uh, the the people of God during the time of the Exodus received that living water, which brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai to receive the law. They also received the manna, which strengthened them for their journey to receive back the fruit of the promised land of paradise. And so there's, there must be a connection here in John between this living water and the food. And where if you could kind of help bring that out a little bit for us, why is it that John turns here at this moment to, to eating? So the, if you go back to uh, in Deuteronomy chapter eight, G, Moses says, God fed you with manna so that you would know that man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. Right? So 
But Jesus is showing uh, his ministry, of course, that it's not earthly sustenance is important. You know, as I'll say later on, you know, they ate the man in the wilderness and they died. Right? But what I will give, that is I'll give my very self, what I will give will give you eternal life. And of course, there's a lot to unpack there, more than we can do right now. But the, um, in the particular context here in, the, in chapter 4 of the gospel, Jesus sent them in, said it was the sixth hour. The story began, so it's lunchtime, it's noon. They went in to get some food. And then they come back, and like you said, they've got food for Jesus here eating. He said, I'm not hungry. And they're horrified that maybe he, you know, a Samaritan woman, he's eating unclean food from a Samaritan woman. No. And then Jesus lifts them up, like you said, from this earthly, you know, perspective of they've got food in their hand, their bellies are aching, and they're wondering if Jesus wants to eat. And he said, look, guys, there's bigger fish to fry here. And I've been doing that. Well, you've been seeking Samaritan shawarma. I've been seeking Samaritans, you know? And so, the, but there's in the Gospel of John an important theme, and that is the importance of the witness of the woman, which will happen also at the end of the Gospel. This woman, whom you'd expect from a Jewish perspective to have no faith, no relevance, she goes into the village and does something very different than the disciples. The disciples go into the village, and they don't bring you Samaritans with them. They don't, they don't, it doesn't even occur to them to think that the Samaritans might need to talk to Jesus. They come back with earthly things. Yeah. The woman goes to the village, having left, like you said, her jar. She doesn't need that anymore. She, she now has living water. She goes and she gives some living water to them. And the village says, hey, come, you want more? Come and see him. And then we have this whole theme of they, they believe because they hear the woman's testimony. And, and the same thing later on, they believe because they hear Jesus's words, which is such an important theme in the Gospel of John. You're mentioning that the Samaritan woman going off to, she leaves her water jar. It's so rich because Jesus just said, if you drink of this living water, a, fa- a spring is going to well up within you. And of course, a spring gushes forth. So this, this, this whole thing of what Jesus says is going to happen now happens to this woman, she comes gushing forth in a sense, bringing the word of God the, uh, that, that she has received now to the Samaritans, and they come running. Uh, and, you know, we have to go back to this text because there's this beautiful image. Now it says, um, uh, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me to accomplish his works. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Well, I say to you, lift up your eyes and behold, the fields are already white for the harvest. And the one who reaps receives a wage and gathers fruit for life everlasting. So the sower and the reaper rejoice together. For herein is the proverb true. One sows, another reaps. I have sent you to reap that which you have not, for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now the Samaritans at town believed in him because of the word of the woman who bore witness. Um, and he told all that I have done. When therefore the Samaritans had come to him, they begged him to stay there, and he stayed two days. Now, so you have to take this, this, this text and allow it to, you have to stand in it, because there's conversations that go on that break up our vision a little bit. <coughs> and this conversation that Jesus has with the apostles does that, kind of breaks it up. But if you bring this thing together, he says, I, I see you lift up your eyes. Behold, the fields are ripe for the harvest. 
and, and in that moment has this conversation while they're looking up. And of course, what's he seen? But the Samaritans now coming over the hill to meet him. And I, I, I almost can see their, them, them running across the field. And as, they're, as they become apparent to the physical eye, you can see almost the wheat moving across the field and coming to the apostles. And, and now he invites them to go and to, to begin the harvest for which they have not labored. They labored for their, you know, uh, shawarma sandwich, but, but he's been laboring for this. And, uh, and now he's going to need them to participate in this harvest. I, let's, Father, to leave off this gospel now, um, to encourage our participants to reread this text from the inside rather than the outside. Now you know, and I hope you're going to go back and study these Old Testament texts about who the Samaritans were. You know the kind of inner workings of this story and how John has so artfully laid it out here. In a, such a, it's almost like a literary artwork. It's just so beautiful highlighting these different aspects. And then once we know that we can stand within it and we can allow Jesus to speak to us, uh, we can see those Samaritans coming over the hill. And then we can, we can also see our lives here and our mission as a church. Uh, um, always during this time of, of Pascha, the church places before us these beautiful images of what the church is supposed to look like. And asks us to reflect upon that, like almost as a mirror to say, how, is, how are we living up to this? Are we a church which is filled with God's life? First of all, are we a church which has come and have we drunk deeply from the, the well? Have we stayed with Jesus? Have we remained there? Or are we coming in and we checking in and checking out? Does our life reflect what most of the Samaritans probably would have done in this situation, which is have said, I'm not going to talk to this Jew because this Jew hates me and I hate them and therefore I'm out of here. I come in, I check in, and I get out of church. I do what I have to do, and I go. I get my water out of the well, and I run away. Or are we coming, or are we, and we drinking deeply from the word of God, which Jesus gives us in the liturgy, and having drunk deeply, allowed that spring of life to come and well up within us, and welling up within us, have we turned to go out to those that God has placed in our life, to share the word of God with them and then bring them to the foot of the master where they too can drink of the living water. They too can receive the gift of holy baptism. They too can receive the gift of, of, of the Holy Eucharist that they might be filled up and go out and bring and, and be a spring of living water to those around them. There's so much to consider here in this text, so much to meditate upon um, as we approach this coming Sunday. I hope you'll take the time to do so. Uh, we are limited for time here. The text from the epistle is given to us from Acts of the Apostles, chapter 11, verse 19 through 30. Acts chapter 11, verse 19 through 30. Okay, Acts chapter 11, verse 19 through 30. I'm going to encourage you to get your Bibles, open up the text, read this whole thing together uh, you know, as a, as a unit, for yourself, and I'm just going to offer a final concluding comment here on this first few sentences. It says, In those days when the disciples were dispersed by the persecution that had broken out over Stephen, they went all the way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to none but the Jews. So again, we're kind of placed in a very similar context to that gospel in which there's this, a bit of a tension here between the Jews as Jews and the Jews as people who are meant to be ones filled with living water, bringing life to the world. 
Okay, so none but Jews. But some of them were Cypriots and Cyrenes. And as they reached Antioch, they were speaking to Greeks, announcing the good news of the Lord Jesus. Later on, it's going to say that it is in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Of course, this is the origin of the Melkite Greek Catholic Church, our church, the Orthodox Church of Antioch, uh, where the disciples were first called Christians. So just two quick things. First of all, we should be very proud of who we are. We were the, the, the first Christians, the first place where we were called, uh, say, little Christ, followers of the Messiah. Uh, that's number one. But number two, to remember that the, the purpose of the church, whether it was in the Old Testament, the New Testament, or here in Antioch, the purpose of the church is to be uh, conformed to the image and likeness of Christ who himself is the source of living water, that we too might be filled up like the Samaritans and become a, a, a spring of water flowing out to the world. And of course, we're not speaking of just water. We're talking about divine life. And to the extent that we are living this gift, then we are fulfilling uh, the purpose of the church. But to the extent that we are treating our churches like a club in which uh, I sit with my friends by myself and I don't speak with the other person because that person's different than me, then we have completely disconnected ourselves from biblical Christianity and are in fact living in many ways like the Jews of D Jesus's day were living. And that is as an isolated group that were not living for others, uh, not living in the image and likeness of God who is love, who gives his life for the sake of the world. I challenge our participants today to look across your church, your parish, your uh, church hall. Um, if, you know, whether it be in a Ukrainian church or a Ruthenian church or our Melkite church, a lot of times we see one group of people sitting. I know where that family sits in the church hall. That's where they sit. And they talk to one another and that's it. We got to break this up. If we're going to be Christians, if we're going to be Christians according to the model of the early church, and according to the model of Jesus Christ, who brought life back to the Samaritan people, then we must break out of our club mentality and begin once again to be what God intended us to be. And that is a light to the world that we might bring salvation and share in the resurrection of Christ, the good news that Christ is risen from the dead, has trampled down death by death and have given life to those in the tomb. Christ is risen. Indeed he is risen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.